Our text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 3, so if you will, please open there. 1 Timothy chapter 3. First of the two letters that uh, Paul wrote to young pastor Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And maybe as you've been reading through Timothy, you've noticed that there are a few recurring principles at play here that the Apostle Paul addresses. Things that they need to know in order to be able to build the church of God in a proper way. Uh, You'll recall that uh, Paul addresses with Timothy the influence that the world tends to have in the church. Uh, We live in this world, and it's so easy for the church to be influenced by the world. I think it's one of the contentions that the evangelical church constantly faces is the pressure to bring the world into the church. Uh, One, because it's very familiar to us. And and number two, the world has a way of making things work. It's very pragmatic. right? Um, The world has a way of uh, getting people to become convinced or to uh, move and to act. And sometimes we try to bring those ideas into the church. And that doesn't work, but we try nonetheless. Sometimes it's moral issues. Issues that the world has put the stamp of approval on, but God said no. And we just have a hard time accepting God's no, and we would rather more so embrace what the world says yes to. And so it's important that we keep our fingers in the text and our knees bowed before God uh, as we study the word of God. Uh, Along the same lines, uh, Paul addresses Timothy in regards to the impact of personal sin in the church. My personal sin will affect the church. Your personal sin affects the household of God. And therefore, uh, Paul addresses the matter of prayer. How much we need to be a people of prayer. If there's anything we should glean from this book, it is that we need to be a people of prayer. And whereas prayer is simple, it is extremely hard to actually do. Uh, We don't necessarily understand how prayer works. And we seem to never have enough time to pray. Or we think that we can handle it ourselves, so why pray? I got this one, Lord. I'll do this myself, so why pray? Uh, Paul here makes it very clear that we need to be a people of prayer. And he also talks about how we need to be a people with a proper reputation in the world at large. A proper reputation, not just among us, but outside of our walls as well. We'll take a look a little more so at that in a few moments. We need to be a people who properly worship God. And we see here in this book that we need to be a people that um, provide proper leadership within the household of God, proper leadership as well. So church work can get a a little difficult and complex, that's for sure. All this is happening as we meet from week to week and throughout the week. I want you to notice here that the leadership topic is at the very top of our list this morning as we open to chapter 3. It is a continuation of what we see in chapter 2, but now Paul is going to be very specific. Last week we saw how women are to lead within their own realm. Here in chapter 3 we see how men are to lead, how men are to lead within the household of God. And we see a discussion in verses 1 through 7 as to what is expected of a man who is called to be a pastor. Whether you call him pastor, elder, overseer, 
doesn't matter. These are all biblical terms referring to the same biblical office, same church office. How are men to lead? And so the Apostle Paul gives, he provides for us, characteristics of what biblical male leadership should be. Now, not everyone is a leader. Not every man is a leader. If everyone was a leader, there would be no one leading because there's no followers. And there would be a great deal of chaos as well if everyone was a leader, correct? We all know how it goes when you have too many chiefs, right? And in reality, if all were leaders, none would be leaders. And so God provides leadership within the household of God. Uh, some people crave leadership, others do not. Uh, some people properly crave leadership, and some people improperly crave leadership. Uh, we'll see this in the text as well. What we're going to see this morning is that God calls men to lead his household. And he does so, say, men, I want you to lead with wisdom. I want you to lead with grace. I want you to lead with patience. Men, you need to be leading in a gentle way, in a bold way, also with self-control. We see this throughout the New Testament. But of this list I just gave to you, I, I, I think self-control is the foundational predominant characteristic that needs to be found in anyone who would be in leadership in the household of God. We also see within this context here that character in leadership is what is of most importance. In fact, character is vital when it comes to leadership in the household of God. I would say it is vital in any area of leadership, but in our context here, it is vital within the household of God. These here, what we see in chapter 3, are characteristics that a pastor must possess, an elder must possess. But listen, listen very carefully. Don't all point your finger at me, because I'm going to point it right back at you. Whereas the pastor must possess these, you, Christians, should be striving for them as well. These are not just for me. This is for us. The difference is this. For a person to pastor a church, he must possess these characteristics for a Christian to be living well before God and the Church of Christ, you need to be striving for these characteristics. This should be you, one step at a time. And you'll notice, too, as we read, that character ranks above skill. Now, isn't that a surprise? In our day and age, skill is what matters, right? Not character. All I want is a guy who's going to do the job. It doesn't matter what he does in private. Well, the Bible says otherwise, especially when it comes to the church. Your character is more important than your skill or your spiritual gifting. And as we read on, you'll notice as well that characteristics, that these characteristics are not distinctly Christian. Rather surprising, isn't it? When you take a look at this list here, you'll see that this is a list of characteristics that we want for our children. These are characteristics we want not only of our pastor, but also of our spouse. These are characteristics that help us get along well at work. In fact, how we wish our bosses had these characteristics. Or our national leader, or our government at the state level, or even the mayor. These are characteristics we really 
embrace and we say, wow, I wish this was you. Well, what the scriptures are saying today is, pastor, it has to be you, but it's also saying, Christians, this ought to be you. You see, we want these characteristics for everybody else. We have to start desiring them for ourselves. We should look at this and say, wow, I want this to be me, whether I'm an elder or not. They are virtues, and they are not distinctly Christian virtues. Other cultures, other philosophies, other religions have embraced these virtues, these moralities as well. But they are virtues. And let me explain to you why they are virtuous. They are virtues because they reflect the goodness and the character of God. In other words, through natural law, we have this understanding that these are good things. And the reason we know that these are good things is because God is good and we are created in the image of God and therefore we value what God values. That's why I know that stealing your wallet would be wrong. That's why I know that hitting you over the head with a hammer is not good. Not only might you hit me back, but it would be wrong for me to injure you. How do I know that? Because God has placed in me an understanding of what is right and what is wrong. It's natural law, a law that reflects who God is. God is this way, and therefore I am this way. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not, you know the distinction between right and wrong. Natural law. These are, by the way, the marks of personal godliness in the context of the church. And you'll see as well that leadership in the church is extremely important. Uh, I was just talking to somebody uh, last week out sitting there in the porch, and uh, we were talking about how the church is a reflection of the pulpit. What you see in a pulpit is what you'll see in a congregation. It's pretty heavy on my shoulders. It is. Uh, nonetheless, there's a lot of truth there. Just as the home is a reflection of the Father quite often, so the church is a reflection of the pulpit. Uh, that's an important thing to keep in mind as we consider who will pastor us. Who knows where the Lord is going to take you next? Who will be your spiritual authority? It's something for you to consider. God does not require perfection from a leader. He does not require perfection in leadership. But the church leadership is and certainly is a unique calling. And when the pastor fails in these areas, in moral matters, there is a very large, expansive, and deep injury that comes about. You see, when your boss lets you down, it's too bad. You might have to look for a new job, but you just move on. But when your pastor lets you down, it cuts deeply. And it's hard to recover from because of the unique calling and the task of the pastor. We've all been, or at least heard, of pastors who were unfaithful to their spouse or who helped themselves to the offering or who did things they were not supposed to be doing, usually in private. How disappointing that is. How scarring that is. I've met many Christians who have never recovered from that because of the pastor's doing. 
And so it is important that the pastor has these particular characteristics. They are not exaggerated. They are not overly high expectations. No, they're rather rather sober, but very achievable expectations by the work of God in us, in me. And let me remind you, it's not just for me, but especially for me, but it's also for you as well. So let's take a look at verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. That was a long introduction, no? You're supposed to shake your head and say, no. (laughs) Nobody did that. My first point is this. A Teflon reputation. This is what we read, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so my first point is a Teflon reputation. And why did I use that word Teflon? It does sound like a New Testament Greek word, doesn't it? Sounds like I pulled it right out of the Greek. I don't believe it's a Greek word. It is a Greek magazine. I believe it's a Greek band as well, but it's not a Greek word. But it does sound Greek. And maybe this is because of my New Jersey uh, upbringing. I chose that word. I can't seem to get away from the nuances of the mobsters. I don't know. But, um, but, but the reason I chose the word Teflon is because I think it explains my point best. Teflon has been around with us for oh, several decades, since 1938, thanks to DuPont. And it's the commercial name for polytetrafluoroethylene. And we know it as that coating on our frying pan that keeps the eggs from sticking. Everything slides right off and it's so much easier to wash. That's Teflon. Well, the pastor, the elder, the overseer of the church must have a Teflon reputation. So Paul writes here, the saying is trustworthy. This is a phrase he's going to use three times in this book. He says, the saying is trustworthy. In other words, it's of general importance to all of the church. It's universally applicable. So pay attention. He says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and then he defines who anyone is, he he says, he desires a noble task. The elder should be a he. He desires a noble task. And the word overseer actually comes from the Greek word obiskopos, from where we get the word episcopal, but we also get the word bishop from the word episcopos. And if you'd like doing word studies, go and look that up. It's interesting to see how episcopos becomes bishop. He says the overseer aspires. Aspires means that he's doing something that is good. He's reaching for something that is worthwhile. He is setting after something. And what is it? He's setting after becoming a pastor in a household of God. Here, Paul says, that person who desires to be, aspires to be an overseer, or a pastor, he desires a noble task. Conveying then the idea that men should aspire to such a task. This is something we men should aspire to. Now, not all men do, and not all men will, but some will. 
And so these words are directed to you, if that is your aspiration, to one day lead the church as an elder, as a pastor. But these words are not just for those who aspire to such a post, but rather these, once again, are words for all of us who would sit under the tutelage of a pastor, under the spiritual authority of a pastor. We should know what to look for. And because this is a noble task, the person carrying out the task must have, must match the caliber of the task. He must be a person of noble character. The overseer, the pastor, must have noble character. In other words, he must have an exemplary life. Uh, He's not going to be perfect, but he ought to be a person who is free from any flagrant violation of what we see here. In other words, he must be above reproach. Verse 2 reads, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. In other words, he's unimpeachable. There's a word for us these days, right? Unimpeachable. A Teflon character means that when he is, when he is accused, that accusation just slides right off of him. It doesn't stick because it can't. It doesn't apply. A Teflon reputation, unrebukable reputation. Now, he's not alone in this requirement. In fact, if you go to chapter 5, verse 7, you see another person, uh, other people are also to have this same sort of above reproach characteristic. So I just want to remind you that we're not just talking about the pastor here. I want you to think that this is about me, you as well. Okay? These are characteristics for all of us, but especially mandated for the pastor. The pastor is to especially have this unreproachable reputation. Not unapproachable, unreproachable reputation. He is to be free from gross faults. Yes, there will be failings, there will be shortcomings. But he is to be free from gross faults in observable conduct. When you see him, when you know him, he should be above reproach. And so then Paul gives to us 13 different virtuous characteristics of what it means to be above reproach. It's one thing to say you are to be above reproach. Now the question is, well, Paul, what do you mean above reproach? In what way must he be above reproach? And so let me outline these for you, or better yet, detail them for you, uh, explain what Paul says here. He gives us 13. Now, don't worry, I will not be long. They, these are, are brief, but they are important, and I'll categorize them. The first category, category is the pastor's reputation in general. In general, verse 2, he is to be the husband of one wife. Literally, it reads this way, He is to be a one-woman man, the husband of one wife. Now, it's not saying that in order to be an elder, he has to be married. Keep in mind that, generally speaking, in the early church, elders were just that. They were older. But that wasn't the rule. Consider Timothy. He was a young man. But here, it is not saying that the pastor must be married, but it is saying that if he is married, uh, he is to be the man of one uh, 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 one woman he is a one woman man 
If he's not married, he's not supposed to be a womanizer. Committed to just one woman. And of course, obviously, this has implications for polygamy. It also has implications for divorce and remarriage. But the emphasis here is primarily on marital fidelity. He is to be a man who is faithful to one woman. In other words, purity in a marital life. He is to not only celebrate, but he is to maintain that covenant relationship with his wife. A one-woman man. And he's also supposed to be sober-minded. Some of your translations will say he is to be temperate. Um, uh, Unfortunately, um, through the temperance movement, which I was surprised to read, lasted over 100 years here in the United States, from the mid-1820s to the 1930s into Prohibition years. And, and, and whereas there was good and bad there, unfortunately, they took that word temperance and they isolated just to the use of alcohol. And then they went from not only should you control your alcohol consumption, but you shouldn't drink any alcohol at all, uh, which is far into what the scriptures say. But unfortunately, the temperance movement turned that word and isolated that word into just one issue, alcohol. Really, temperance is far more than alcohol. And that's why the ESV translates it sober-minded. Sober-minded. To be temperate or sober-minded here means that you are vigilant, uh, that you are prudent. It means that you are not given to excess, that you're not a person who is rash, but rather you're measured. It conveys even a sense of self-control. And that does, of course, include alcohol. But it also includes food and exercise or sports or work or rest. The truth is, is that God has given us many good things. And unfortunately, we abuse them and they become detrimental. Here, we're told that the pastor ought to be a person who is sober-minded. That he is vigilant He's prudent about the use of whatever it may be that's his common practice. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, Paul writes to Timothy once again. He says, as for you, always be what? Sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of, the, of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then Paul says you need to be self-controlled as well. You, Timothy, and the rest of your elders there, your pastors, need to be self-controlled. Once again, it goes back to what we saw in chapter 2. The the, the self-controlled person literally has a sound mind. Is a person who is not only sane, but controls the way of thinking with this understanding. How you think is how you act. If your mind is well, your actions will be well. Self-controlled. Control your behavior. And he is to be respectable. Not one who demands respect, but one who earns respect. Um, The respectable person is a person who actually invokes admiration or esteem by virtue of being above reproach. We've all met them. I hope you know many people this way, but there seems to be a shortage of respectable people, people that we can across the board respect. We have very little here, very few heroes. And even the heroes we do have, for some reason, we find it enjoyable to push them off the pedestal. I, I hope you have heroes. 
I hope there are people in your life that you can respect and say, there's a person worthy of respect. There's a person I can follow. He is to be respectable, above reproach. And get this one. Here we have the forgotten virtue. He is to be hospitable. Hospitable. Why do I say forgotten virtue? Because we really don't practice much hospitality. 1 Peter 4.9 reads this way. Show hospitality to one another. Do you know the rest? Without grumbling. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. Show hospitality. In other words, open your doors, welcome others into your personal arena without grumbling. Without saying, he's coming over? Oh, not her. I just cleaned the floors. Oh, there's nothing to eat. Oh, I'm so tired. I thought this was my me time. Or my house. Well, I can't entertain anybody here. We have so many reasons not to open the doors, right? Here, for us, but especially the pastor, he is to be hospitable, and he is to do so without grumbling. Romans 12, 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints. We're okay with that. And then it says, and seek to show hospitality. Oh, really? Who's got time for that? I'll just send a check. No, hospitality is still a virtue. The hospitable person is one who welcomes and is willing to help others. And then we see, still in verse 2, that the pastor is supposed to be one who is able to teach, able to teach. And you'll notice that this is the first and the only characteristic that involves skill. This is the only one. He is to be a one who is able to teach. In other words, he needs to be a person who's knowledgeable regarding the scriptures, of course, regarding the Christian life. We're not talking about knowledgeable in the things of physics or even history per se, but he should be knowledgeable in the Christian faith, knowledgeable in the things of God, the word of God. He should be able to explain truth and refute error. It's not saying he needs a certain amount of scholastic or academic training. No, it's saying he needs to know the Word of God and he knows how to teach the Word of God and he knows how to correct error. Again, in his second letter, chapter 2, Paul writes to Timothy, says, he says, Be kind to everyone, able to teach patiently. So that when someone does come to him for advice or, or for counsel... And the person says, I think the Lord wants me to do this or, or that. Or I'm struggling with this matter or that matter. The pastor can say, well, let's see what the Bible has to say. And take him, take her to the word of God. Of course, this is true both in public as well as in private. Able to teach the word of God. Well, then Paul lays out a few vices and then some contrasts with those uh, vices. Uh, he, he gives to us, by using the negatives, uh, other godly virtues. 
And here, you'll notice verses 3, 4, and 5, that he deals primarily with the reputation of the pastor at home, the private reputation. Right? Who is he when others, when the church is not watching? And so we begin here with the reputation in the home, verses 3, 4, and 5. If you're counting, this is virtue number 7, begins at verse 3, and he is to be a person who is not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. Now, why does Paul tell us this? Well, it's probably because there were leaders in the church who were not self-controlled, were not temperate, and they were becoming drunkards. Uh, He's addressing here a very worldly issue that flowed into the Christian home. And eventually, when drunkenness fills you, your body fills you, it does fill your home, and it will affect your family. A couple years ago, more than a couple now, a pastor came to my office, um, traveled a long distance, and I was not expecting, it was not an appointment, I, I pulled up and he was here already, and he came to tell me that he was not a drunkard, that he was not an alcoholic. And he went for a good 20, 30 minutes explaining to me why he was not an alcoholic. I had heard rumors that something was going on in his life and that he was uh, abusing alcohol. But I still don't understand why he came to tell me. And after a long discourse, he said, now what do you think? I said, well, you do realize that the first thing an alcoholic says is that I'm not an alcoholic. His family, the night before, did an intervention in his home. He came home drunk, and they did an intervention. And and, and as a result, he was very angry, and he said, I don't need this. I am in full control. He was not. Now, this man very wisely did seek help. He did find treatment, and to my knowledge, he's escaped the addiction but only after losing his family, after losing his reputation, after losing his post as a pastor, but most of all, losing his respect, losing the respect of his family. What a loss, what a loss. The pastor is not to be a drunkard. Now the truth is none of us are to be drunkards. Not you, not me. Keep in mind, there is a difference here between what we see here and what we see in present day. Keep in mind that alcohol was a very common beverage in the days of the scriptures. There was no refrigeration. So if you wanted to drink fruit juice, either you had to squeeze it there and drink it quickly or make sure that it became became alcoholic so that it would preserve You see, in those days, alcohol was not recreational. It is today. I mean, it became recreational in certain times, but it was just part of the everyday drinking, a beverage. It's either water or alcohol, by and large. Today, alcohol is certainly recreational. And we must be careful what becomes of that recreation in our daily practices. The Bible does not say don't drink. The Bible says do not get drunk. But if you cannot help but get drunk, then you should not drink. It is that simple. It is that simple. The pastor is not to be a drunk, and neither are you to be a drunk. 
Moving on, another vice. He is not to be a violent person. Literally, it reads there, he is not to be a striker. We're not talking about baseball. We're not talking about bowling. We're talking about brawling. He is not to be a striker, someone who is violent. Violence is simply a a bad form of anger. Remember last week we were talking about anger, right? There's good anger, there's bad anger. Um, In contrast, he's supposed to be a gentle person even when he is correcting his opponent. Bad anger addresses the matter in a very destructive and corrosive way. Good anger corrects in a constructive way, which actually builds up the person. Good anger responds with righteous anger. In other words, I get angry at whatever makes God angry. But it's only not only that I get angry at what makes God angry, but I also respond in a way that God would respond. How does God respond? When he's angry, he responds with patience, with mercy, forgiveness, and mercy. That's how God responds. That's good anger. We should have good anger. We should be good and angry. The pastor should not be a violent person, but rather a gentle one. In other words, he's not harsh. He's not to be severe. Uh, but more so than just that, the, the, more so than just being a peaceful or peaceable person, uh, the, the, the Greek here actually carries the idea that he is supposed to be an equitable person, gentle in the sense that he is equitable. He doesn't just look at the letter of the law, but he also looks at the spirit of the law. Interesting, isn't it? That's who the pastor needs to be. I'm getting nervous up here. And he's not to be quarrelsome. Some of the translations will say pugnacious. I like that word. He is not to be pugnacious. A quarreling person is also an angry person. Uh, the elder is supposed to be a peaceable person, not prone to being contentious, pugnacious, but rather uh, he is supposed to be a gentle person who brings harmony to situations. He, he is supposed to abstain from fighting. <laughs> I remember growing up, my father told me about how at one church service, this was in Latin America, and you say, oh, those Latinos. It happens here, too. There, there was a, a fight in the service. And afterwards, the musician, the guitar player, took the guitar and slammed it over the other person's head. Imagine that after the church service. Whoa, hot-blooded Latinos. I know another story not far from here where the pastor duked it out with another guy in the front of the building after the church service hard to believe isn't it by the way these were bible believing bible teaching churches how can it be you see and meanwhile cars are passing by oh look at that is that the pastor well it's a good life job He is to abstain from fighting. Keeping in mind that the pastor doesn't have to win every argument, even if he's right. He doesn't always have to be right either. Which implies that he is a learning person, one who learns from others. Not a quarrelsome person. And if you look at verse 3, you see there that he is not to be a lover of money. 
In other words, he's not to be a greedy person. Recall Paul's own words about himself, about his behavior. Look at what he writes in Acts 22. He said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I looked at you and you looked fine. And I could tell your pocket was full of money, but I did not covet it. What's yours is yours. What's mine is mine. What God has blessed you with, amen. What God has blessed me with, so be it. He is not to be greedy. A lover of money is, is summed up in just those words. Greed. He's a person who does not, a greedy person is a person who does not find contentment in whatever God has given already. Uh, rather, the, the, the greedy person is one who's always looking to possessions or to financial security in order to be satisfied. And here Paul is saying, Pastor, don't let that be you. And I'm saying to you, don't let that be you. Money is a very common idol in Christendom. It really is. It's the idol money people don't see because we keep the checkbook close to the heart. But money is an idol for many of Christians. Pastors do not fall away from that either. The pastor is not to be controlled, not by alcohol, not by anger, not by money. And then we have one more evidence. If you look there at verse 4 and then 5 in regards to his reputation at home, he is to manage his home well. You see that, verse 4? That's virtue number 11 in case you're counting. He is to manage his home well. Again, the text here is not saying that he needs to be a man who has children. No. saying if you do have children, you need to be managing your home well. He is to lead or govern his home properly. Failure to do this disqualifies him from leading the church. It's that simple. I remember one pastor whose daughter actually was very rebellious, very rebellious, ran away from home, tried to hook up with her boyfriend somewhere, who knows, around here you got to walk a long way before you run into people. But that's what she did. And, and rightly so, he sat her down and said, you realize that if you keep this up, I'm going to be out of a job, out of a ministry, and out of a home. Because the scriptures say, that I must govern my house properly. He was right. She did shape up, by the way. She did not come to Christ, but at least she was respectful of her husband, of her father, rather. Um, and he is to do this with dignity, with respect from obedient children, which, of course, contrasts with disobedient and disrespectful children. He, he ought to be known as a man whose children respect him and obey him. It's not that the children are going to do everything right, but he should be governing his home properly. Managing the home will be a prerequisite of managing Christ's church properly. He is to be vigilant over the home first. Without proper care of one, the other one doesn't matter. If he can't care for the house... He can't care for the church. In fact, Paul makes that very clear. Look at verse 5. He asks a rhetorical question. He says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
That is to say that it is impossible to manage and lead a larger population of voluntary attenders if he cannot manage and lead a smaller household of dependents and legal subordinates. It's that simple. We're not saying here that the children are not able to think for themselves or be themselves, but it is saying here that the children must be obedient and respectful of the father, of the parents. And then verse 6, are you still with me? It's a long list, I, I know. You look like you're still with me. It's two sermons, a long list in two weeks. I get it. But you're with me. Okay, so I'm going to keep going, right? Verse 6. You see there his reputation spiritually. His spiritual reputation. Here's virtue number 12. He must not be a recent convert. Uh, notice, once again, it's written in a masculine. It's referring to he, not her, or not them, but he. And it literally reads this way. He is not to be someone who has recently sprung up. Interesting, right? A recent convert. Not only is he supposed to be able to teach the word of God, but he is not to be a novice or a neophyte in the Christian faith. He needs to be able to teach the Word of God. And of course, understanding and knowing the Word of God comes with time. You, you need to be mature. Uh, but that's not what it's saying here. Here it's saying, giving us a different reason for why he cannot be a novice in the Christian faith. Look at what it says, verse 6. So that he will not be puffed up with conceit. If you were to give this task, this duty, this position, to, to a role to a new believer, that person will most likely be puffed up with conceit. That is to say that he will have an impaired view of himself as well as others. And that's why Paul later on, again, 2 Timothy 5, he tells Timothy, don't be so hasty in laying on hands on other elders, new elders. Make sure they qualify. Make sure they are not new believers. Again, for those of you who enjoy word studies, I do. The word there that's translated, puff him up with conceit, um, it is the Greek word from which we get the word typhoon. Blizzard. Knocking you over. Drowning you. Horrendous, torrential rain. In other words, literally, it will cloud you up or blow smoke so that you can't see. A new believer, given the task of being a pastor will end up being clouded up. He'll be blowing smoke. He'll have a wrong judgment. He'll have moral blindness. He'll have improper perception. And my friends, nobody deserves that. Don't do that to somebody. It's unfair to give somebody a task and set them up for failure. It's also unfair for the church. I like to watch um, Civil War documentaries. But I must say, as I'm watching it, I always wonder, why in the world did they attack this way? 
running across an open field? That's crazy, right? But it only goes to show you how little I know about warfare. I'm the private deciding how they should fight the wars. <laughs> of course, you would never take a private and give him general responsibilities. You would never slap stars on his shoulder and say, now go and lead your man. Why? Because he's a private. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't turn a private into a general until he's able to be a general. Able to be a leader in the household of God. And look at what Paul says here, very specific, specifically, verse 6, the second half. He says, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He will be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. You remember what happened to Lucifer, right? His downfall was what? Pride. Typhoon. It was pride. And that clouded his judgment. And likewise, the novice believer is bound to repeat the same sin as Lucifer did. And then that pastor will not be above reproach. And finally, verse 7, his reputation in public. Paul writes, moreover, meaning especially or very importantly, this is necessary. He says, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. What the world thinks of the church is very important. It's not that we want to appease the church, it's that we want to have a clean reputation. Rather, we don't want to appease the world, we want to have a clean reputation before the world. Uh, remember what Paul said in chapter 2, verse 2? This is very important so that you will have a quiet and tranquil life. But here, especially because the church's reputation is a commentary about God. You see, people are going to decide what they think about Christ based on what they see in us. What they see in me. They're going to make judgments. I can't tell you how often I've heard people say to me, if that's what Christ will do to you, I'll have nothing of it. As they watched Christians, professing Christians live out very worldly lives, living like non-Christians, and then the unbelievers sitting there saying, well, if that's what Christ does, nah, just leave me alone. I'll just live my way. You live your way. How unfortunate that is. Well, the pastor's public reputation must be above reproach. He ought not to be loathed because of his conduct. He ought not to have to be rebuked by the public because of his behavior. Lest, we see here, he fall into the snare or the trap that the devil has set for him. You see, my friends, the reputation that we have, that I have, but also the rest of us have, is going to reflect first on ourselves, then on the church, then on the gospel, and then it will reflect on God himself. And so we must be very careful how the world perceives us. Live properly is what it comes down to. Be above reproach beginning with me and ending with you. Now, in closing, let me just tell you quickly a story. I don't remember who said it, but it, it caught my ear, and I, I'd like to repeat it. It has to do with pastors, and you could laugh at me if you want. It, it's a story of Martin Luther, the reformer, and his wife, Katerina. And, and one morning, Katerina came down 
for breakfast dressed in her funeral garb, ready for the funeral. And Luther was sitting there eating breakfast, and he said, who died? And she responded, I'm going to God's funeral. Apparently he died. You can imagine how Luther responded, how startled he must have been. And he started to correct his dear wife and explain to her the fallacies of even suggesting that God had died. To which she answered her beloved husband. She said, honey, I thought he died because of the way you've been complaining for the last two weeks. You speak as if God were dead. Pastors are tempted in three primary ways. One is to whine, two is to recline, and three is to shine. By whining, I mean pastors are prone to complaining, saying, Oh, woe is me, I work so hard, and God, why is everybody so difficult? Why are other ministries so successful? Woe is me. And, of course, to recline. Some pastors think that, hey, nobody's watching me all week. I could put my feet up and do nothing as long as I show up with a good sermon on Sunday. And you're thinking, and a shorter sermon. He tends to be lazy, and he can if he wants to. And some pastors simply want to shine. Hope to be noticed, hope to be admired, instead of desiring to decrease so that Christ would increase. Wine, recline, and shine. Pastors are not alone, but here we're speaking especially of pastors. These are expectations you should have of me, my friends, as pastor of Hope Church. But these are also, in all honesty, expectations I have of you as pastor of Hope Church. Character does matter. It matters everywhere, but especially within the household of God. For both the pastor as well as the Christian. Character matters. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the standard of the Christian life. And thank you, Lord, for the spirit that enables us to actually become these people, become this sort of Christian. So help us, Lord, we pray. Amen.